Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast which brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGowan, with me as always is our transfer guru, Duncan Castles, before we got started on a packed pod today. We just want to remind you, please, uh, a lot of you already done this, keep the momentum going, go uh, find the British Podcast Awards and vote for the transfer window. We'd uh, love to uh, be able to bring that trophy home, it will be for all of you as well as us. So, Duncan, nowhere else to start today than what can only be described as the shambles at Spurs uh, regarding appointment of a new manager. Uh, I can, you can probably count more than me, but so far I think they have tried with uh, Antonio Conte, uh, Mercy Pochettino, Julian Nagelsmann, uh, Hansi Flick, uh, Ten Hag, Nuno Spiritus Santo, Paolo Fonseca and Reno Gattuso. Now, for any club, that's a lot of candidates to get through um, in the last sort of three months or so. And many of them, of course, just in the last month. Exactly what is going on? Because obviously there was the news uh, that you reported last night that Gattuso had effectively agreed terms. Um, although I should point out to all our uh, eagle-eared and eyed listeners who were on social media claiming Duncan had got this wrong, that wasn't the case. If you look at his tweet, he says that the contract has not been signed, but that Gattuso expects to become the new manager of Tottenham. Now, uh, some uh, rather crash remarks he made a few years ago uh, have attracted the attention of Tottenham fans and they've made official representation to the club. Uh, the Tottenham supporters trust, that is, uh, regarding those remarks. And it seems Levy has quickly ended his interest. Duncan, there's one central figure to the, the um, kind of mess that's going on here over the last certainly month or six weeks, and that is the new sporting managing director, Fabio Patrici. Can you explain to us the role he's had uh, so far in the appointment of a new manager? And is he ever even going to take this job up? (laughs) Because he's not supposed to start till July 1st. (laughs) Yeah, look, it is a remarkable situation at Tottenham Hotspur. Um, It was described to me this morning by someone who's been involved in the appointment process um, the various attempts to get a long-term, in inverted commas, replacement for Jose Mourinho in at Tottenham Hotspur as a nightmare. Um, it certainly feels and looks like a nightmare for Fabio Paratici, who, as you say, was named by Daniel Levy as managing director of football just last week. Um, Levy saying that he was delighted that Paratici will be heading up the football side of the club as we look ahead to next season. Well, heading up the football side of the club is a man who's now tried to get four separate coaches in um, before he officially begins work on July 1st and failed for various reasons on all of those. So Antonio Conte, very well publicised. Um... Tottenham allowing the information to go out that they were they were close to to hiring the man, but um, as we explained on this podcast, Conte had serious reservations about salary, about um, ability to recruit players, about ability to achieve on 
at the field of play were he to come back to the Premier League, having just won the Scudetto in Inter. And he, he stepped away uh, from that. Um, very much in the background, um, very quietly done, was uh, an approach and an agreement with Julian Lopetegui of Sevilla. Um, Tottenham were ready to uh, buy out Lopetegui's contract at the Spanish club for 5 million euros. He had agreed to come. Um, then issues um, related to his family and related to uh, Brexit regulations, making it more difficult for people around him to move into the country alongside him, prevented that deal from happening. Paratici then had to look for another coach. A deal was struck between Paratici and Paolo Fonseca in what we described in the podcast as a marriage of convenience. Um, Fonseca was prepared to come to the club uh, for a low fee, uh, a low salary of two and a half million euros net. Uh, he was also prepared to work with Ryan Mason and Ledley King as assistants and separate himself from uh, his long-term assistant coach, Nuno Campush. Um, what I was told by people close to Fonseca was an amicable split and that Campush had, had decided that he wanted to coach in his own right. That deal was done with Paratici at the beginning of last week. Um, and this conversation starting on Monday, Fonseca travelling from Sardinia to Roma on Wednesday to agree the, the contract um, and the terms under which he would work. Um, he had not at that stage met Daniel Levy directly. Um, at the beginning of this week, that first meeting with Daniel Levy took place and according to um, a source who is uh, well aware of what was going on in that meeting, it was a disaster. Um, Fonseca did not impress Levy. Levy decided that he was the wrong um, kind of individual and didn't have the correct understanding uh, of what was required to coach and manage Tottenham Hotspur and instructed Paratici to find another candidate instead. Now, I should say here that the brief from Fonseca's camp is that it fell apart over um, coaching staff and, and Tottenham's uh, refusal to allow them to build his coaching team, which kind of contradicts what they were saying the previous week. There's also a story going out, uh, which was released in Italy, I think to cover both sides' embarrassment, that uh, the, 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 the reason that agreement fell apart was because Fonseca would be earning less in England because of Italian, the benefits of Italian tax laws than he would have been at Roma and, uh, and Tottenham were not prepared to pay the additional. I'm told that's completely false and that the, uh, the net salary was essentially the same in Rome as it was going to be in London and it was actually Levy's decision to overrule the choice of that new managing director of football who he said would be heading up the football side of the club going forward. That placed Paratici and Tottenham and Daniel Levy in a difficult position as they needed to find another candidate. Um, Gennaro Gattuso then enters the scene this week as proposed um, to Paratici and then by Paratici to Levy. Um, I can tell you that Paratici, while he was still at Juventus, had proposed Gattuso as a candidate to replace 
Andre Pirlo, and he'd been on uh, the shortlist during, at this stage, uh, Gattuso still being at Napoli. Obviously, uh, Paratici was moved out of Juventus as a condition of Max Allegri coming back, um, that decision being taken by the people who own the club. Um, so Gattuso comes into play for, for Tottenham. Paratici again doing the, the groundwork on this. My information is that Gattuso spoke to, in inverted commas, everyone at the club. He spoke to Daniel Levy. Um, an agreement was reached yesterday on a contract. Uh, again, salary relatively low. Uh, Gattuso's salary at Napoli, where he um, basically resigned his position at the end of last season, having spent two seasons there and having won the Coppa Italia the previous season, had been €2 million uh, guaranteed, rising to €2.5 million Euros net with bonuses. So at the same level as Fonseca. There was also an agreement on assistance and Gattuso was to be allowed to bring his important assistance with him. As of yesterday evening, they were drawing up the, the contracts and looking at the fine detail of the contract. Gattuso agreed to take the job, expected to have the job. Um, then the story leaked uh, from Italy back into England and you had that fan reaction which you've described, Ian, with a, a social media campaign uh, hash mark, hashtag uh, no to Gattuso. Um, that prompted Levy and Tottenham to res respond and to call a halt to their agreement with Gattuso, saying that it would be impossible because of the supporters' reaction for them to go ahead with uh, this process and this appointment. Pull the plug in the deal. There's been attempts, I'm told, to... Uh, fix the situation I and mean, it's been suggested to Levy and to Tottenham that Gattuso could publicly apologise for those statements which were made several years ago in 2008, one of the, the comments he made about criticising same-sex marriage, 2013 when he, he uh, said I can't really see women in football um, following Milan's decision to uh, to place Barbara Bellasconi, the owner's daughter, in a senior executive role at the club. Tottenham did not accept that. I'm also told that Fabio Paratici believes still that there's a possibility he can talk Levy round in this. And I think that gives you an indication that Paratici hasn't really done his homework on his new boss because when Levy makes a decision, it doesn't change his mind very often. Uh, and it leaves Tottenham scrabbling around still for a coach um, now two months after the sacking of Jose Mourinho um, in the week they were supposed to play a League Cup final and, and were hoping to end that 13-year silverware drought. It's an interesting um, backstory, if you like, Duncan, to this uh, particular situation as well, which Spurs fans may or may not be aware of, and that is, of course, the emergency COVID loan which Spurs took out uh, in order to uh, be able to pay day-to-day -day running expenses at the club. Uh, they borrowed £175 million, at a very low interest rate from the Bank of England. It was criticised at the time uh, by some people in Parliament because there are lots of people who believe that football is just awash with cash and therefore the uh, the country should, the taxpayer should not be bailing out um, or helping uh, football clubs to maintain their expenses. <clears throat> However, what's interesting on a football side of that loan is that as a legal requirement of the loan being made, Spurs were allowed to spend or indeed to put themselves in debt 
anything up to five million pounds without prior agreement with the Bank of England. However, anything over five million pounds had to be discussed. And it's certainly uh, they were very clear that they didn't expect Tottenham to make any single commitment over £10 million during the period of the loan. Now, this has had a knock-on effect, certainly in two areas. One, this is the reason why Tottenham are looking to employ a coach on such a low salary. Remember, the average coach's salary in the Premier League is around £5.5 million, the highest being Pep Guardiola at over £15 million. Um, that explains that part of it. It also has... Uh, delayed uh, Hoyman Son's contract renewal, which is of priority to the club and no surprise there given how uh, wonderfully he's played in the last uh, two years. So therefore, the Spurs are in a bit of a bind. <clears throat> I'm told that the, the debt, the full £175 million, was repaid on Thursday of this week, thus releasing Tottenham from those financial constraints regarding the appointment of a coach and obviously uh, the delay on Son's contract. But of course, Levy said just in the past few days how Tottenham were the most indebted club in Europe. They have the most expensive stadium in Europe. And he painted a very bleak picture financially for the club, all going back to the stadium built, which of course went way over uh, in terms of the price they had to pay. And of course, COVID has a massive effect in terms of fans not being allowed into that stadium. Therefore, the revenue it was supposed to bring has been completely wiped out. Where they go from here, Duncan, I'm really not sure because they've been through so many potential appointments as coach and they still have the shadow of Harry Kane wanting to leave over them as well. Um, to be fair, bringing in you know, in excess of £100 million for Kane, selling Kane, uh, would go a lot, would go some way to um, easing the financial difficulties. But it's even difficult to see how, if they did sell Kane, that they'd still be able to reinvest in the squad. And I was told that in part of the negotiations uh, with Fonseca, uh, he was told they would have no money to spend whatsoever. And he said, well, how do you expect me to compete with those clubs I'm supposed to compete with when you're not giving me the, the, the tools to do so? And that was something which Levy took umbrage at because uh, he felt that for someone like Fonseca, it should be an honour to manage Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and you should be jumping at the chance, never mind uh, asking what the budget's going to be. Well, it's interesting that the, the, the conversation with Levy went so badly because th there's actually a precedent for this in Fonseca's um, past. When he was at Shakhtar Donetsk, West Ham United looked at him as a potential replacement for um, David Moyes at the time. Um, they eventually signed Maurizio Pellegrini uh, for the job, but Fonseca was interviewed by West Ham United, and I'm told that interview also went extremely badly. Um, not solely because of Fonseca, but um, partly because of the actions of his agent, who, um, who who managed to behave in a fashion in that interview that wound David Sullivan up and uh, and ended up with him stepping away from. Uh, having Fonseca, who had a you know a good CV and 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 had done and achieved some significant things with Shakhtar Donetsk, played very attacking, uh, progressive football, solid coach, um, and and going to the sort of the tried and trusted option of Pellegrini, which didn't really work for West Ham. It they are in Tottenham have got themselves in a real bind here, and and it goes way back to. 
the decision to sack Mourinho, the expectation at the time that they'd be able to hire Julian Nagelsmann. So they thought that they had basically one of the, the sexiest, most popular young coaching names in European football ready to uh, move into Mourinho's empty chair because Nagelsmann's a- agent had been pushing um, them to to hire him. And Bayern then end up losing Hansi Flick because of Flick's decision and fallout with, with Bayern over recruitment. Flick goes to the German national team. Nagelsmann takes the Bayern job. Um, Tottenham end up sounding out people like Eric Ten Hag actually try, had an attempt at convincing Hansi Flick not to go to the German national team and come to Tottenham instead, something Barcelona also looked at. Um, then also talked to Maurizio Pochettino uh, because of his unhappiness at PSG and try and convince him to come back. Pochettino encourages them in that, although he was simultaneously talking to Real Madrid and telling Real Madrid he wanted to come there. And I understand would have chosen Madrid over Tottenham if, he, if he'd been offered both jobs and if PSG hadn't stepped in to extend his contract and make him too expensive for the, the two clubs. Um Amidst all of this, you have Daniel Levy uh, at the tail end of last month making a public apology to Tottenham supporters for what's happened over the last season, talking about how the club had lost sight of some key priorities and what's truly in our DNA. And, and then going on to say we are acutely aware of the need to select someone whose values reflect those of our great club and return to playing football with the style for which we are known free-flowing, attacking and entertaining while continuing to embrace our desire to see young players flourish from our academy alongside experienced talent. They've then gone and tried to hire Antonio Conte, Conte, who does not fit that description. And a couple of attempts later, they try and hire Gennaro Gattuso, who certainly doesn't fit that description in in terms of the the values of, of, the, of their uh, great club. Um, Look, I've talked to people in Italy who know Gattuso well and they say he wouldn't necessarily have been a bad appointment for Tottenham. What he's very good at is getting um, additional performance from players. He He's extremely demanding, high-intensity trainer. He's played quite attacking football at Napoli. Um, but they question whether in normal circumstances Gattuso, Gattuso has the the track record and the credentials to get a job like Tottenham and and I think it's indicative of where Tottenham are that they're they're you know they're rushing around the market changing their mind on someone they've they've offered the job to and who's agreed to take it go to another coach they offer on the job he agrees to take it they're writing up the contracts and they pull out of that one um, and all this in the space of one week it's it's remarkable given how organised and strategic Daniel Levy has been in so much of his work at Tottenham uh, during the time he's been in charge of that club. It is. And for those of you who are asking, um, the sightings of Daniel Levy on the Seven Sisters Road and indeed in the platform at the train station asking random people if they had a UEFA Pro licence are as yet unconfirmed. Duncan, uh, it just occurred to me that one man who soon become available is Yogi Love. <laughs> Look, I, or, or the sex, the sex guru, as he's also known, Yogi Love. <laughs> there will be a lot of agents putting names into Tottenham Hotspur at the moment. Um, you also have Nuno Espirito Santo um, wondering if he's going to get the Everton job, just as Rafael Benitez is is uh, briefing that 
he expects to get the job. Um, I can tell you that there's been, over the past two days, no contact from uh, Everton with Nuno. So his expectation is that his chance there is gone. Um, there you have a, a, a skilled and competent and experienced Premier League manager who is available. And you have Tottenham who have players coming back for training on July 5th. And um, they need to they need to present a coach that can, one, satisfy a very upset fan base and, two, do the job well. Well, if I were a Tottenham player, I'd be expecting to see Ryan Mason taking pre-season training on July the 5th, the way things are going. Um, from one financial shambles uh, to another in North London, uh, because Arsenal are still seeking to sell players in order to uh, enforce, uh, reinforce their squad this summer for the upcoming season challenge. Uh, we told you on the podcast before about their attempts to buy players, but in doing so, telling the um, clubs that they've inquired with that, yeah, we want to buy them, but we haven't got the money right now. Just you know, bear with us. It'll be coming. It'll be coming. Uh, a new target's emerged though, Duncan, in, uh, for Arsenal, and quite an exciting one as well, um, because you can tell us about one of two players who've actually outscored Erling Haaland in the Bundesliga, and I'm just saying the league itself, this season. Yeah, this is Andre Silva, uh, who scored 28 goals and 8 assists from 32 Bundesliga appearances for Eintracht Frankfurt last season. Um Almost got them into the Champions League uh, qualification for for this year, just losing out on a place to Haaland's Dortmund team um, at the at the end of the season by I think one point. Um, Silva is twenty five. He has been at a lot of top clubs in his career. Um, Porto, he started, went to Milan, and then Sevilla. Uh, a, a big chunk of that time, he's he's been affected with quite a a bad knee issue. Um, which took uh, medical staff uh, a time to solve. Um, wasn't very happy with his, his handling at Sevilla, but has now turned back into the striker people expected to be him to be when he was at, at the young stage of his career at Porto. Um, he is only under contract until 2023. Interestingly, he's been targeted by Leipzig, um, who are probably one of the best judges of talent in, in European football um, at present. They see him as an option uh, to kind of be the long-term replacement for, for Timo Werner, uh, who they sold last summer. Um, they're also looking at Pat Sandaka from um, RB Salzburg, um, who has a lot of interest in, in English football at present. But those two are their, their main targets for um, centre forward position. Frankfurt are asking 40 million euros for the player. There's an expectation that that won't be achieved um, and that they will be forced to sell him for less money. Leipzig certainly don't want to pay 40 million for him. Arsenal have expressed their interest and, and done a lot of preparatory work on this deal. As you say, they have told um, Andre Silva that they need to sell before they can bring him in, but they want to do that deal. And the player that they've targeted to sell is Alexander Lacazette. I think this is a this is a smart move by Arsenal because you're switching a player who's in his thirties um, and who has been looking for a way out of Arsenal for some time now because he hasn't been an automatic first choice for a player in his mid twenties um, who has been scoring 
in a in a physical league um, should have the characteristics to work in English football. Um, and who I'm told his preference is to move to England rather than to stay in the Bundesliga and switch across to Leipzig. Obviously, the difficulty for Arsenal, as they're finding in other areas, is managing to sell their high salary players um, for a reasonable price to raise the cash they want to refresh and, and, and change the team. And I mean, I think we told you last week uh, that Aston Villa had targeted Emile Smith-Rowe. We've seen uh, Villa now make an offer for the player. Um, that's the kind of player that Arsenal want to keep, but uh, they have as yet failed to extend his contract. He's only got two years left on contract and they're having to fight off other English clubs who have um, substantial resources in Aston Villa's case uh, to retain that player while juggling the areas of the squad where it's got flabby and um, perhaps not contributing the best to to the squad spirit while um, raising cash to bring your uh, younger players who will change the way they play and, and hopefully give Arteta a better chance of, uh, of getting them back into the European places. Ruben Neves is another individual there um, that one dependent on trying to sell Granite Jacka to Roma and agreeing a price on that. Also looking at Yves Basuma, Basuma, who has interest from other uh, major Premier League clubs. Um, so that I think the ideas are good at Arsenal. It's the execution that's going to be the the test for them. I mean, there's a lot going on in the market, Duncan, but not a lot of deals getting done. <laughs> it seems to be the case. But then in a tournament year albeit a delayed one like this one, uh, that's always the case. Uh, people are distracted by things going on elsewhere. Chelsea are another club who are currently engaged in attempts to bring several uh, players to the club in order to mount a challenge for the Premier League title next season, having just won the Champions League under Thomas Tuchel's first six months in charge. Ashraf Hakimi, the uh, Inter Milan fullback, is high on that list. Uh, a proposed swap deal involving Emerson uh, is certainly... Uh, part of that deal. But contrary to reports widely that it's because the deal's not been done because Chelsea refused to pay the full 65 million euro asking price, we understand that's not the case. That The reason, in fact, is twofold. And one is that uh, Inter are very, very keen on taking Andreas Christensen as well as Emerson uh, to uh, the San Siro. However, Tuchel has actually been uh, pleasantly surprised by Christensen's form and has grown to like him uh, and has, believes uh, he's played well in Euro 2020 as well. So he's kind of uh, not really that keen to dispose of Christensen. Emerson, however, on the other hand, has made a total of 15 appearances in his three years since he signed for Chelsea in 2018. And the second reason this deal is being held up is because Emerson wants the full year remaining of his contract, uh, which runs out next summer, paid uh, 100%. Now, normally, when a player doesn't ask for a transfer and wants to leave a club, the rule of thumb is that you will be compensated to the tune of around 70 to 80% of the contract. Sometimes it's lower, but usually doesn't go above 80%. Of course, Emerson wants 100%. Uh, 
he hasn't given a reason for that. I'd say having earned what he's earned in three years for 15 games, that's good work if you can get it. Um, but that is the other reason why that deal is being held up. Um, Duncan, before we started recording the pod, you did say to me, what, what are they going to do with Rhys James? <laughs> yeah, Hakimi's what, 22, um, one of the best young right-backs in, in European football. Um Inter took him for about 40 million euros from Real Madrid last summer after he'd spent two successful seasons on loan at Dortmund. Uh, had a very good season for Inter in, in their title win. Uh, seven goals and ten assists uh, in, in Serie A, which is, which is quite a, a return for a fullback. It's sort of Andy Robertson-like levels. Um, and... That, again, underlining the ambitions of Chelsea, really, because they've got Rhys James, who is one of the talented, most talented young fullbacks in English football, obviously an England international. Um, I think stronger in attack than defence. But uh, you you double him up with Hakimi and you have Ben Chilwell on the left-hand side. Um, that's, that's quite an array of options and at, at fullback. Uh, with Tuchel still wanting to strengthen it at centre-back and as you um, discussed in the last podcast, absolutely wanting to strengthen it centre-forward and, and Erling Haaland being um, very much targeted as number one choice by Chelsea uh, and Chelsea trying to step in front of their competitors to to do a deal um, with Dortmund for Haaland this summer. Um, as you said, Roman Abramovich is prepared to meet Raiola and Haaland and uh, Haaland's father's substantial personal terms on salary and commission. Um, and it's down to convincing Dortmund to accept a transfer fee. But this is, you know, in a market where the majority of clubs aren't doing deals yet because they're having to be creative in the way that they, they structure these deals. And most, you know, clubs like Barcelona... Real Madrid, um, Manchester City, even to a certain extent, are are getting involved in, in talking about swap deals, uh, which are more complicated to uh, to structure and and to get over the the line because you have to get two players uh, happy with the the switch between clubs. Um, Chelsea are are at least setting themselves up to do very expensive deals um, for players who will obviously strengthen their squad and, and could be the basis of a, of a very powerful team for a decade going forward. Part of the delay as well, we should mention, is that Chelsea are keen to, uh, let's just say, exaggerate the value of Emerson in this deal because that way it makes the books look better uh, when the um, financial results are drawn up, um, much as we've discussed in the podcast before. That kind of thing is going to become more common with regards to deals being done. Speaking of deals, Duncan, Manchester United released uh, financial results for the first three months of this year to the end of March. And um, Manchester United fans um, who already are falling in love with the Glazers, apparently, uh, <laughs> now that they're talking to them now, um, will be swooning positively swooning over the fact that despite the fact the club are still carrying uh, huge debts overall and uh, are making a loss, uh, they're still paying a dividend. <laughs> that evil D word. 
Yeah, um, one of a very select group of uh, elite clubs in European football that pay dividends to their owners, uh, regardless of those losses that they've reported, uh, which was, it was her third quarter uh, financial results with a, a, a loss of £21.6 million. The Glazers have kept a dividend in place, um, £10.7 million going in those dividend payments, the vast majority of which, funnily enough, go to the Glazer family. Um, at a time that when they're discussing a transfer fee for Jaden Sancho and the, the separation between their offer and the amount that Dortmund want to do the deal is not that much greater than the £10.7 million the Glazers are about to pay uh, to mainly to themselves. Uh, interesting, Glazer, Joe Glazer, um, when he appeared at that fans forum a couple of weeks ago, was asked about dividends, uh, as well as the substantial debts at the club and, and made an attempt to defend the the payment of dividends. He said, um, you know, we are able to spend with the top clubs throughout Europe, whether it's wages or transfer fees. We've been able to keep our ticket prices low. We've not increased them in over 10 years. We're able to pay a dividend, but it's a modest proportion of our five to six hundred million pounds of revenue. It's less than three percent of that, he said. We're able to do all these things, and that to me is the sign of a well-run club. It has never stood in the way of us pursuing players or transfers on the pitch. We have walked away from transfers at times because the other side wanted an outlandish number. And while it's easy to pay it, that one time it does have consequences. You do it once and the next person expects it. And then the next person expects it. And that's not good ultimately for the club. Um, look, it's interesting to hear Glazer speak and it's interesting to hear his defence of of paying dividends. Essentially, we make lots of revenue so we can afford to put uh, what he says is less than 3% of it into the owner's pockets every year. Um, it doesn't get past the fact that if that money was reinvested in the club, if Manchester United were to use the the huge revenue advantage they have over almost every club in European football more effectively, and if it was spent well, then they'd have a more competitive squad and they should be able to turn that, like other clubs are able to turn it, into silverware on the field. Um, but that hasn't been the Glazers' way. And certainly from what Joe Glazer said to the, the supporters when he uh, deigned to involve himself in a in an internet call with them, it, it doesn't seem there's any chance of that changing. He doesn't seem to have any embarrassment over the, them taking £10.7 out Um in a half year uh, when the club is running losses and when there are these demands from the supporters and and a lot of um, demand from his manager, Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, that they, they buy more high quality players because according to Solskjaer, that's what they need to compete again for the Premier League trophy. Well, Duncan, it's, it may just be a coincidence, although Glazers don't tend to do coincidence, but I was speaking to um, someone who's involved in sports uh, investment and finance today. Uh, this subject came up um, in a kind of jovial uh, frame of reference, and he said, no wonder they're taking a dividend. Have you seen what you're getting for pound to dollar these days? Over $1.40. 
So whatever they're getting in dividend in pounds, once they once they transact it into dollars, they're getting a very good deal, even better deal. Maybe they'll bring it back. So it is the last podcast of the week, which of course means only one thing. We will be awarding uh, the famous donkey award. Uh, this one's going to take a little bit of explaining, but I'm going to keep it short because we are going to award the Liz Truss, who is the UK's Department of Foreign Trade Minister, the Donkey Award for steel making. Now that's steel, S-T-A-L, not the aluminium. Steel making after she trumpeted her first pro, uh, post-Brexit trade deal with Australia, which will make a difference to Britain's economy of a whole 0.02%. Well done, Liz. In you we trust. Sorry, <laughs> that was very bad. Anyway, I'm going to open the gold envelope now, Duncan. We'll fight this this one this week. Okay, there we go. First, Fabio Paratici. I was going to say Duncan Spurs incoming managing director of football, but as I said before, I don't think I think he might be on probation now after the mess he's made of recruiting a manager. So, steel making, Fabio Paratici, Daniel Levy, similar. Uh, how do you sell a bad deal as a good deal? How do you sell any deal? Uh, and last but not least, our old friend Ed Woodward at Manchester United for well everything. Duncan, I'm going to leave it to you to pick this week's winner. Quite a field for the the Liz Trust Steel Making Deal Making Award. Um, ironic that Daniel Levy's in there, given that he uh, he he prides himself on being a, a superb deal maker and and always coming out of every ne- negotiation as a winner. Um, he certainly hasn't done that in in recent weeks and recent months, and um, the deal he's doing he's done with Fabio Paratici hasn't got off to a good start for sure and as you suggest uh, I wonder how long Paratici will remain uh, in situ at Tottenham if it, it carries on this way. Uh, Paratici also making himself a strong candidate for the award with what's happened at Tottenham although you have to excuse him uh, the difficulties of working under Daniel Levy if you you know if you present two coaches in a week to your, your new employer who said that you are heading up the football department and the new employer says, no, I don't like either of those, go and find me another one. Not the easiest circumstances to work under, but you know, Paratici had some dubious deal-making at Juventus, which, as we've explained in this podcast before, was one of the reasons Max Allegri wanted him out of the club as a condition to come back. However, the two of them have to lose out to Ed Woodward um, and... I just I don't need to go into the detail on this. Just look at Ed Woodward's career and his deal making when it came to doing football deals, the players he signed, the money that that's been spent, and uh, the state of the club um, as he exits that role as um, executive vice chairman compared to the state of the club when he entered it, when David Gill was chief executive and Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager. So Ed Woodward's got another one then. He has. Um, which is a shame for it's a shame for Tottenham because it, they almost ended their silverware drought with a donkey there. Oh, they could have put it in the trophy cabinet. There's lots of room. Um, oh well, Ed Woodward, uh, you'll soon be selling these on eBay. You get so many, uh, <laughs> but don't worry, we're watching. You're not. We should say here, you're not allowed to sell donkeys on eBay. And I have now, having seen an Oscar in person, um, because uh, my uh, my friend who has just picked an Oscar up for my octopus teacher, Pippa Ehrlich. Um, I've seen her Oscar 
Um, they are quite substantial and heavy. You've been pictured with it, Duncan, not just seen it. Yes, we'll, we'll keep that one. We'll keep that one private <laughs> for now. Um, it actually says on the Oscar, it has inscribed on the bottom of the Oscar that this remains the property of the uh, Academy. The Academy. And you are not allowed to sell it or hand it over um, to anyone else, which is quite interesting. Um, so I, I imagine that means the market on eBay or um, other... Uh, black market channels for Oscars is, is uh, substantially higher because uh, the Academy are trying to stop the, the winner selling them. So just remember that, people. If you see a donkey somewhere that shouldn't be, just you tell us and we'll send the boys around. Before we leave, it would be remiss of us not to make one mention of the most historic rivalry in football, of course. Scotland take on England at Wembley Stadium. Uh, in order to survive and have a chance of qualifying, they need not to lose. Uh, Duncan, you know me, I always like to get, roll out this anecdote because I was actually there. I'm going to quickly do it. Last time they met in a competitive match was the Euro 2000 playoff uh, at Hamden Park on the Saturday. The smallest man in the pitch, Paul Scholes, scored two headers in a 2-0 win for England, which have, uh, was effectively enough, even though Scotland won 1-0 in the second match at Wembley. When walking over the Mount Florida railway bridge on my way back home from the match, uh, there was about 2,000 Scots fans waiting to go on a train back to central Glasgow when some wag grabbed the public announcement uh, uh, microphone and said, this is a public announcement. Will some please mark Paul Scholes? <laughs> That's the Scottish sense of humour for you. <laughs> Always black. Thank you very much uh, for listening to this Transfer Window podcast. Please engage us, if you wish, on our social media channels, uh, all the usual ones on at Transfer Podcast. Also, uh, we are on YouTube. And, of course, uh, Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Ian uh, Garbo SJ, even. And... Uh, Yes, give us a five-star review on iTunes if you liked what you heard, as well as voting for us in the podcast awards. So you've got a big to-do list this evening, people, as well as watch that game. This has been the news before it becomes news on the Transfer Window podcast. <clears throat> Until next week, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.